The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. Guess what? What? It's it's our last podcast of the year, and I'm kind of sad about that, Brian. I know, I know, but we're recording this a little bit ahead of the new year because... You're going on a special trip, actually. Yes, I'm going to see my daughter who's studying abroad. So I'm going to Paris. What abroad is she studying? <laughs> oh, Shecky. Old vaudeville joke. Shecky. She is in Paris, so I'm heading there, actually, momentarily. But I just want to say to you, Brian, I've really, really enjoyed doing our podcast this year. Thank you so much for being a part of this and for sharing your wit and, most importantly, your wisdom about politics. Oh, my God. Well, thank I, you oh so my God. much. Wait, so what just happened? I was just weirdly sincere for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for allowing me to uh, to, to, brush, okay, blah, blah, blah. to brush aside greatness uh, every other week for about an hour or so. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Anyway, well, of course, Donald Trump was the big story. We spent a lot of time talking about Donald Trump this year. So we wanted to spend the last podcast of the year talking about something new and different. Right, Brian? Yeah. What is that, Katie? Donald Trump. (laughs) And we're going to do that with a journalist who really held his feet to the fire during the campaign season. David Farenthold is a reporter with The Washington Post. Many people are saying he might actually win a Pulitzer Prize. I don't want to jinx this. But remember that Access Hollywood tape? Remember all the reporting on the Trump Foundation? Yes, I'm not mentioning, you know— the word, because I don't, I don't know. I don't like that word, Brian, the P word. That Donald Trump used yeah, repeatedly. The grabbing the, tape. the P yeah, thing. Yeah, grabbing yeah. the I, uh, I, kitty cat. I, yeah, yeah I, I tried to avoid that. Let's just say, yeah, he, he likes to grab them by the kitties. How about that? <laughs> that sounds gross, too. But anyway, David Barathold broke these stories and reported fearlessly throughout the course of the campaign. But David became kind of Woodward and Bernstein all rolled into one at a time when a lot of people were just commenting on the polls and the horse race. He was really focused on trying to figure out who Donald Trump is as revealed by his charitable contributions, his past comments, 
and really broke news about stuff that mattered. That's right. He wasn't talking about the comment of the day, the news of the day. He actually did some serious digging. And digging using a cool mix of 21st century social media technology and good old fashioned gumshoe reporting and yellow legal pad reporting. David Farenthold from The Washington Post, thank you for joining our podcast. We're very excited to talk to you. We're going to be completely geeking out today, David. It's going to be all Trump all the time. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Um, first of all, I want to say congratulations on your extraordinary reporting this campaign season. I know you've been heralded for all your scoops, for uh, many of your pieces that really got to the heart of issues in a in a era when people were covering really the superficialities of the horse race. So congratulations. There's Pulitzer rumors flying around, David. Um, You must be feeling pretty good about yourself right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was looking at your bio, by the way, and it occurred to me it took you about 16 years to become an overnight sensation. So I think that's probably good to remember. Exactly. Yes. This time last year, I was writing about Jim Gilmore. So uh, it's really been a a pretty fast rise. Well, Uh, how are you feeling? Well, good. I mean, the job that I thought was going to sort of be over on November 8th now continues on in a, in a much more uh, comprehensive way. So I'm trying to kind of get figure out what my niche is going to be covering Trump the president. So it'll be some Trump charity stuff as well, but it's obviously got to expand because it's, you know, he's there's a lot more to well, say about Well, you know, before now. we talk about moving forward, because that's a big area I think we want to uh, broach, how would you characterize covering this campaign? What was sort of your your true north? as you set out to cover the Trump candidacy? Well, I I felt like the way to cover Trump is not to write about his words or not about his words only, not about what he says, but about what he does. Uh, And Trump is a a unique candidate and he spends all his time sort of throwing out these things that I don't know if they're on, if it's purposeful or not, but they serve as a good distraction. Every day there's some new thing to chase. And in the campaign, it was sort of a new outrage every day. He he said said things that would have killed off anybody else's campaign, but the way he did it, he would say them and the next day while we were sort of getting spun up to cover the first outrageous thing, he'd do another outrageous thing. We had to jump onto that. So I wanted to cover his actions, the results of his actions. And in particular, in this case, this really sort of important moral dimension. This is a guy who bragged his whole life about how much he gave to charity, how generous he was. Let's go and see if did he really keep those promises and how much sort of moral compunction did he feel to help those And you really fortunate. put sort of a bullseye on Trump's character. I mean, I think in a way that any great journalist would. Can you just reveal or review what you discovered in the course of your reporting? The main takeaway for me was that Trump understood that because he was rich, people expected him to be generous, that that's what rich people do. It always been that's a sort of part of the lifestyle of a rich person is giving to charity. And he wanted to have that appearance as much as he could. He wanted to have the the sort of the facade that he was a very generous person, but he did as much as he could to avoid actually doing the charitable work that that, that uh, illusion or that facade required. So often he would use other people's money uh, as his own charities. He'd find a way to convert other people's money into what seemed like his own charitable gifts. He would often promise gifts that he never gave. And even his own charity, the Donald J. Trump Foundation, he would use that in ways that basically where he was the biggest beneficiary. It looked like he was helping charity, but actually often he was helping himself. Uh, so that's, that's what I learned. He knew that people expected him to be generous and he wanted to meet those expectations on the surface, but didn't often want to comply with the the sort of true moral dimension of charity, which is giving actually something of yourself to help others. So what actually spurred you to start looking into Trump's 
philanthropy or lack thereof? And and how hard was it to track down the contributions he did or didn't make? Well, it started actually uh, kind of by chance. I, so I spent all of 2015 covering basically loser candidates, George Pataki, Jim Gilmore, Rick Santorum, Rick Perry. They were all gone by the time we got to the Iowa caucuses or they were they were all clearly uh, headed out the door. So I had nothing to do on Iowa caucus day. And the, report, the editor said, okay, go to Iowa, follow Trump around. We're going to see this possibility, which didn't actually come to pass. This three-time married guy, sort of play, famous playboy is going to win, we thought, the famously conservative and religious state of Iowa. So go see what he does on caucus day. So I went to this rally Trump did on caucus day in Waterloo, Iowa. And during the rally, he got up, it was up on stage and he stopped the rally and he said, okay, now come to the stage, uh, this local veterans group, the this Waterloo veterans aid group. And in the middle of the rally, he gives them a giant check, like a one that they give to people who win, win golf tournaments, a really big oversized check that says Donald J. Trump foundation on the top, make America great again on the bottom for a hundred thousand dollars. It turned out this was money that he had raised a few days ago. If you remember, he skipped a, a Republican debate because he was having a fight with Fox News, and he had this big televised fundraiser race. He raised $6 million for veterans, which included a million bucks out of his own pocket. So this is he's stopping his ch- political rally to give away a check from his charity. Um, and I thought, okay— I know you can't do that. I don't know much about charity law, but I know that's against the law. You can't use you the money in your charity to boost a political campaign, even if it's your own. Uh, so I came back from having covered Iowa and New Hampshire, and I wanted to look into that to see where they'd broken the law. And there was another thing. He had said he'd raised $6 million, but he'd only actually given out about a million dollars of these oversized checks, and then he stopped. So I wanted to know, okay, where's the rest of the money? And I thought at the time that question, where's the rest of the money, would take a couple of days to answer because what political campaign would basically stiff veterans in the, you know, in the middle of a Republican primary? Who would ever do that? That's well, impossible. Well, and the veterans' contributions he made to catch people up were as part of an event to get out of a presidential debate that he didn't want to be part of. He said, you know what, instead of debating these you know, losers, I'm going to throw a fundraiser for veterans to which I'm going to contribute a million bucks of my own money. Basically, you're right. So he got a huge political goodwill out of that televised fundraiser and out of the idea that, look, isn't he amazing? He can raise six million bucks for veterans at the drop of a hat. He's so rich, he can give a million bucks of his own at the drop of the hat. It's important to test and see whether he really followed through on those promises because he got a lot of goodwill out of making it. It's so funny. This seems like such a no, you know, a no brainer, doesn't it, David? I mean, you did something that most journalists should be doing. You've actually followed up, right? You continued to cover the story and connect the dots. But the dots were harder to connect than I thought because I got back and said, okay, Trump, you know, Trump campaign, where did the rest of the money go? And I looked and looked. I called the veterans organizations he named as beneficiaries. I talked to them. After a month, I could find about $3 million worth of the $6 million. I didn't know where the other $3 million had gone. And I kept looking. I kept looking. This was kind of in the background while I was writing some other stories. Finally, we get to May. So it's now been almost four months since the original fundraiser. Something really odd happened. Corey Lewandowski, who was Trump's campaign manager at the time, called me and he said, okay, I can tell you what happened to that $1 million that Trump said he'd give out of his own pocket to veterans groups. He gave it away. But I can't tell you who got it or in what amounts or when or anything. It's a secret. But just know that million dollars has been given away. At that point, were you also looking into Trump's other charitable giving? Had you broadened out yet or were you just focused on this one event? 
I was mostly focused. We'd done some other stuff, but I was mostly focused on the veterans thing. Because that was such a concrete promise he'd made in the con- in the context of the presidential campaign on TV. So I really wanted to focus on that. Um, and so after Lewandowski says that to me, I thought, well, okay, I want to I want to see if he's right. I, you know, if he won't tell me any details, I want to try to find some of this money on my own. So I used Twitter, knowing that Trump was on it, knowing that a lot of media were on it. I started sending out queries on Twitter to different veterans groups. That's so clever. Well, I thought if I, in the old days before Twitter, you would just have to send out, you know, call or email a million, you know, different veterans groups. And there's thousands of them and you never would be able to reach them all. So, you know, the idea that you could prove a negative, like, there's no way you could prove the negative. Donald Trump gave no money. But I thought maybe I'll prove the opposite. I'll, I'll find a little bit of the money and we'll say, OK, well, I found the tip of the iceberg. This must have been a real thing. Uh, and I sent a, spent a day tweeting and nothing, no response from Crickets. anybody. I couldn't find any of the money. And I thought at the end, yeah, I, I thought, I've, okay, I've just wasted a day. I felt like a, the oldest man in the world. I was like, I tried the Twitter. It didn't work. Uh, just, what a waste of time. Uh, so what happened was Trump, uh, he saw, he, he was paying attention. And that night, the night that I had been making this search and not finding any of his million dollars, that's when he gave the million dollars away. So when Lewandowski had told me he'd given it away, that was totally false. It was still in Trump's pocket. So um, how did it, you do the crowdsourcing? So you tried the Twitter, <laughs> and that didn't work so much, although it actually did because Donald Trump saw it. But tell us about crowdsourcing the reporting. Well, that was my first experience with it, and I was surprised at how well it worked. And then a bunch of media, a bunch of you know campaign reporters, other reporters picked it up and started tweeting about it, spreading the reach, and uh, veterans groups started t- started tweeting about it. And the idea had been, okay, maybe I don't, I, w- I won't be able to query every veterans group in the world, but you know somebody else watching this will say, well, hey, you didn't ask me directly, but, you know, he did give us this money. So I I could find it kind of by word of mouth that way. That was the idea. And it turned out, and I thought, okay, my backup plan is maybe Trump will just tell us what he did. And it turned out to be, that's what happened because he hadn't given it. There was nothing else to find. There was nothing to find at that point. It was all in Trump's pocket. So So you kind of shamed, you kind of shamed him into it in a way. Yeah, I guess so. I asked him that night. So Trump called me. This is the last time he and I spoke. He called me in late May to say, okay, yes, I just gave the million dollars out. He gave it all in one fell swoop to this particular charity run by a friend of his. And I said, well, you know, could you, uh, would you have given this money out if I hadn't been asking about it? And he said, oh, you're really a nasty guy. You're a very nasty guy. That was his answer. Did he say sad with an exclamation mark? I don't, I don't find that he says that in conversation, but he does say nasty a lot. It was a weird interview because he would say, you're well, so you're nasty. Well, you're a nasty guy, and Hillary Clinton was a nasty woman. Yeah, so it's, it's, it, it, I'm not definitely not the only nasty person I don't know. We world. should cue Janet uh, Jackson he, right now for some reason. But. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But then you started looking more broadly at what the Donald J. Trump Foundation has been doing or not doing and over the decades. And in a the nutshell, decades. the answer would be? Well, the Trump Foundation, he was giving money out of it, not in very large amounts, to charities, often charities that did business with him. You have to remember a lot of Trump's business at Mar-a-Lago and Trump Tower is renting out ballrooms to charities who can pay like $275,000 a night to rent out Mar-a-Lago. So they're his clients. So he was giving donations to these clients. But the money we figured out was not his. The money of the Trump Foundation, he hadn't given the Trump Foundation a dollar since 2008. It had all been other people's money that he took in and then gave out. I mean, the one extreme example we found just amazed me. So, okay, so there's this charity in, in Florida, the um, Palm Beach Police Foundation, which is uh, – they rent out Mar-a-Lago for $275,000 a night. Trump wants to give them a donation. 
but he doesn't use his money. He doesn't even use the money in the Trump Foundation. He calls the foundation of a friend of his who has died and asks the friend's surviving relatives, hey, listen, I'm raising money for the Palm Beach Police Foundation. Can you kick in some? And they say, sure. But he says, don't give it straight to the Palm Beach Police Foundation. Give it to me, and I'll pass it on to them. So they give him $200,000 to the Donald J. Trump Foundation. He just takes their money and gives it on, adding nothing of his own, gives it to the Palm Beach Police Foundation. And then Trump is recognized as a philanthropist. He gets a giant uh, crystal palm tree as a reward for his great philanthropy when it was all somebody else's money. That's the sort of most direct example. Where it's like Florence Johnson gave the money, but he gets the credit. He gets the credit, yeah. One of the strangest stories was the story of his portrait. (laughs) Four foot tall or six foot tall portrait that was paid for by the foundation. Can you tell us the the story of that portrait? Sure. So I've been calling all these charities that the Trump Foundation had given money to just to find out, A, had Trump given them any money extra out of his own pocket and also to find out, okay, what was the money when the Trump Foundation gave this donation? Was it in exchange for anything or was it just a straight up gift? Uh, and so this particular group, this was, I'd called 325 charities. This is charity number 325. And they said, yes, uh, the, the Trump Foundation gave us $20,000, but it wasn't just a straight gift. It was a purchase. Uh, Trump had gone to this event at Mar-a-Lago where the entertainment was a guy who was a speed painter. He paints portraits in like five minutes and then, uh, then auctions them off. So he painted a picture of Trump. He auctioned it off. Trump's wife, Melania, was the only person willing to bid very much for it. She won it for $20,000, and then he paid with the Trump Foundation's money. And that is but really puts him on thin ice with the IRS because— That is not kosher, is yeah, it? That is I mean, not kosher, David. No, it's—well, basically, the IRS says that if you're a charity and you buy something, that it has to be something that you're using for a charitable purpose, right? Trump can't use his charity to buy something for himself or his business. So the question is, what, what the heck— uh, charitable purpose would there be in a six-foot-tall, $20,000 portrait of Donald Trump? And we never got the answer. Why wouldn't she just pay for it from from their private funds? We never got the answer. I thought in a number of cases that Trump's understanding of his charity was whenever he needed to give money to another charity, he would use the Trump Foundation, basically not understanding that that's not how it works, uh, that even though in this case the money went to a charity auction— and then we so we, then we found this later another portrait a ten thousand dollar portrait also of Trump himself uh, that was also bought we pay using charity money and that we actually were able to trace to his golf resort outside Miami where it's hanging on the wall of the sports bar so that's clearly illegal so wait wait so what so so there were two portraits there were two portraits one for twenty thousand so, dollars one for ten thousand and so whatever happened to the twenty thousand dollar one is that in uh, Trump Tower. Well, all we know is that afterward, the artist at Melania Trump's uh, uh, direction boxed it up and shipped it to Trump's golf course in Westchester County, New York, with the understanding that it would hang in the employee boardroom. I haven't been in the employee boardroom there. Uh, they won't let us in. They won't talk to us about it. So maybe it's there or maybe it's somewhere else. But it was clearly not going to a children's you, hospital. Uh, the other one you tracked down, though, and that was where again? Uh, Trump has a golf resort called Doral outside Miami. Oh, right. Uh, and, I know uh, the Doral. Uh, so thanks to my Twitter followers, we found it hanging on the wall of the sports bar there. So that's, you know, the charity paid for it, and it was used to decorate the wall of Trump's for-profit business, which is like textbook self-dealing. Textbook. Well, and you became kind of famous over the course of this reporting of sort of mixing Twitter with this old-fashioned yellow legal pad that you used to keep track of how much money Trump was giving or not giving to charity. Um, how did the yellow legal pad become such well, a thing? you know, we, we had all these promises Trump had made to give money to charity out of his own pocket over the years, and I was trying to figure out if he'd done any of that. And so the Trump people wouldn't help me, and I tried to think, okay, well, I'll try to, again, try to prove 
not prove a negative, but prove Trump right. Let, let me try. Let me go calling the charities that I think seem closest to Trump, the ones most likely to have gotten his money. I'll call them and see whether they've ever gotten a donation from him. And I knew it was going to be futile a lot of the time that I was going to be calling and getting nothing, no answer. So I needed a way to make futility look interesting. And that's when I came up with that legal pad where I could take a picture and at one glance sort of show you how hard I was trying to find this money and how I was failing. We're going to move on uh, in a moment. But before we do, I have to ask you why your reporting, as excellent as it was, didn't seem to resonate with with many voters on Election Day when it came to Donald Trump and his use of charity dollars. I think people did care. I, I have sort of a couple of theories about this. One is that I don't think it was used very effectively by the, the Democrats. I think you're, you're, you're sort of dependent on, you know, in some cases, you know, I can only bring these things to light. Somebody else has to use them for political purposes and you know, for them to, quote unquote, matter in the election. So uh, they used it a couple of times, but not very much. That may be one reason. The other one is that there was just a lot else going on in this election. I mean, there were so many other factors, you know, an FBI director chastising the Democratic candidate and writing a letter a week before the election. You know, to, to say that Trump won, I don't think that means that it didn't matter. It just means that a lot of other things matter, too. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about your other big scoop of this campaign cycle and it has to do with kitties. We'll be back with David Ferenthal right after this. A lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. During our last episode, we asked you, what is the best thing that happened to you in 2016, other than our podcast, of course? And here's what you had to say. Hi, this is Lisa Craig from Cleveland, Ohio. And the best thing about 2016 was the Cleveland Cavaliers winning the world championship and breaking our uh, ruts here in Cleveland. And we're also really proud of how we hosted the RNC this year. Oh, and the Indians made it to the World Series. So I think Cleveland was the best thing for me about 2016. So you asked for the best thing that happened in 2016. For me, the best thing that happened was coming to this beautiful country and being able to expand my life and my career and my education to a higher level after being 25 years in a dictatorship which is a Middle Eastern country. Thanks, Katie. Bye. So, Brian, you love to learn, right? Or at least I like to give people that impression. Well, 
I have a new way for you to learn, the Great Courses Plus video learning service. It's a great way to learn about any topic that interests you. You can learn new skills, expand on your hobbies. I know about the Great Courses Plus because I'm a big fan of one of their classes, which is called The Fundamentals of Photography. The teacher is Joel Sartor, who's a longtime expert National Geographic photographer. And this has been very useful for me because with a new baby at home, I have to take a lot of photos, as you can imagine. You should be sending more of those photos to the team here at the podcast. (laughs) You sound like my mother. But anyway, The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited access to over 7,000 amazing video lectures presented by top professors anytime, anywhere, from any device. And now, I think we have a special offer, Gianna, for Katie Couric listeners, right? We do. You can stream hundreds of their courses free for one month when you sign up. Get your free trial of The Great Courses Plus by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Katie. And that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Katie. On our next episode, we will be talking with Donald Trump. Well, actually, we'll be talking with Alec Baldwin, who plays Donald Trump on who SNL. Who also does a fantastic Tony Bennett, by the way. <laughs> he does a lot of fantastic impressions. Maybe he'll do some for us. He is, he is on fuego. Yes, he is, as Donald Trump would say. Uh, What questions do you have for Alec Baldwin? Please leave us a message at 929-224-4637. And we're back with David Farenthold from The Washington Post. Let's talk about your other big scoop. And this was the notorious Access Hollywood Billy Bush tape. Um, I'm not sure how much you're going to be able to talk to me about this or how much you're going to be able to reveal your sources, but come on, David, give it up. How'd you get that tape? (laughs) (laughs) I can only say we had a source. Uh, It was not something we were looking for or we had, you know, that we knew existed beforehand, but, you know, it fell in our laps. Uh, And maybe it was because I'm better known than I was before because of the Trump Foundation stories, you know, not look at a gift horse in the mouth. And uh, can you just describe sort of how it came to you in terms of did you get a phone call uh, when you listened to it? I mean, just give me some color commentary here, please. Well, uh, we got it. I can't tell you much more about how it came to us, but when we got it, we, it, you know, we, I'm watching this videotape, and the beginning is just a, it's a, it's a video of a bus, right? It's a bus driving around this extremely boring back lot, and you're and like, wow, wow, who cares? Yeah, right? This is so lame, yeah. And you can hear some mumbling, but you can't really hear what the mumbling is about in the beginning. But then, maybe 15 or 16 seconds in, you hear Trump's voice, and you hear him telling this story about to Billy Bush about trying to seduce this woman in Palm Beach, and you know. It, Immediately, you knew the language. You, you know, you could tell it was Trump's voice, obviously, but you knew the language was different. This was him talking about himself in a way that even Donald Trump had not talked about himself in public. It packs a lot into two minutes. Uh, and, I mean, to the point that, you know, he, there's that line in there that always stuck with, you, with me where he talks about groping women. And then he says, when you're a star, they let you do it. And, the, and there's like a, a wonderment in, that, in his voice there, like a genuine wonder where he's like, wow, like I, I'm, not, I'm not BSing here. Like I'm just telling you this is amazing that this happens to me. I, I can't believe the world works this way. So we knew it was a big deal. And we knew it was, you know, this was not him talking about women raiding women's bodies or whatever. This was him saying like, here's what, how I behave. Here's what I do to women. Here's what I will do. Here's what I might do to this woman we're about to meet right now, this so proper actress. And so the, the sort of guy got a lot of gears started in motion here, the video team, the lawyers, you know, trying to figure out, oh, getting everybody ready, like, okay, listen, something really big is going to happen and we have, don't have that much time to do it in. Did NBC sit on that tape? 
I read later that they did, uh, that they had got, they had found it uh, the Monday of that week, I guess, in response to an AP story that was about The Apprentice. Uh, I don't know. That was my main worry all day long was that we were going to get beat by, uh, by NBC. Um, so we had to call NBC, obviously, to say, hey, you know – you know, are you going to sue us because this is, you think this is your property and we, we've, you know, we've gotten it somehow. And B, do you think it's a hoax? Do you think this is, um, you know, that this, because when all the offending words are said, you can see the bus, but you can't see Trump or Bush, can't see their mouth moving. So are you going to, is NBC going to say it's a hoax? And we had to call Trump for the same reason to say, to see if he would say it was a hoax. Uh, so that was- Well, the, so was, wait, yeah, yeah. So what did NBC say? What did Trump say? NBC basically did not get back to us on the record. Uh, they didn't send the signal that, hey, we're going to sue you, but they didn't comment either. Uh, Trump's people, at first, we sent them a transcript of the video of, you know, the parts that are the, the first two minutes. And they said, well, it doesn't sound like Mr. Trump. Uh, can we see the whole video? And uh, we were like, you know, there was some arguing back and forth among the editors, and they decided, yes, they can see the video. So we sent them the full video, and it was, uh, you know, Probably uh, it was about three thirty. We told them, "Look, we're going to publish at four, uh, and you have until four o'clock to, to comment or not. We're going to publish with you know either way." And they got back to us at four. It was almost like a sort of digital stop the presses moment. I had to yell at somebody to get her to stop, you know, before she hit the button to publish it. And their statement that came in then was, "Yes, Trump did it. I mean, you know, this is him. He apologizes. Locker room talk, that sort of thing." Wow. Wait, I just have a question because I'm this is so fascinating to me. Do you think NBC? So they they didn't get back to you because, you know, they took a lot of criticism for sitting on the tape, holding on to it, maybe with the suggestion that they were protecting Billy Bush. You know, this was their show. Access Hollywood is an NBC show. so Just like yes. The Apprentice was an NBC right. show. But he didn't say mm-hmm. that they didn't get back to him. He said that they on didn't the respond record. on the record. I know. That's why I'm following up, baby. Uh, okay, go ahead. Go <laughs> ahead. I let the master work. <laughs> go ahead, David. So uh, – I don't know really – I did not get that much out of them that day. I should note though that when our story published at like 4.02 that afternoon and MSNBC and Katie Tour had a story about this up at like 4.06. So we beat them but not by very much at all. I wonder – but I wonder – I mean it's very interesting. Whether, I guess the, the, the official story is they were kind of running it through their lawyers too. But seems like they had a lot of time, and those were, you know, a number of days spent running it by the lawyers. It didn't take you that long <laughs> to do that, did it? I wonder if they wanted the cover of not being the ones to break the story and to let you all have that honor. Who knows? If, if they did, you know, and that's the origin of all this, I don't know, but I'd be grateful for it. You know, however it happened, uh, I'm grateful for the uh, f- that it was me, uh, no matter what. This changed the tenor of the campaign dramatically for, I would say, maybe— Two, two weeks? weeks? Yeah, two weeks. Yes. And, uh, you know, Billy Bush lost his job at NBC as a result of it. A number of senior Republicans, including members oh. of the United States Senate, abandoned Trump. This yeah. is when McCain mm-hmm. finally abandoned Trump. I mean, it and, was a huge, huge And we moment. now know that behind the scenes, a lot of top Republicans were panicked, convinced they were going to lose in a landslide. Some even said to Trump he should drop out at this moment. Can Do you know much from your reporting about what was going on in Trump Tower as this was unfolding? Uh, no, not really. I mean, there, I, I've read, you know, our version of it, uh, and it seemed like 
I read this interesting Glenn Thrush from Politico uh, wrote something a few weeks ago about sort of how Trump responded to it. And they, they called that sort of one of the most consequential decisions of the election. And Trump basically was unrepentant. You know, he said, I'm sorry, but then, you know, quit, move quickly to say, you know, this is the liberal media out to get me. This is a, you know, conspiracy to stop you, the people, from getting what you want. Uh, apparently borrowing a playbook from a lot of things that Bill Clinton did when he was under investigation uh, for his affair in 1998. So, the, you know, Trump responded aggressively. I, I thought that the, that, the, that the true consequence of it for those couple of weeks was going to be that it had set Trump against the Republican establishment in a very open way. Remember, he was attacking Paul Ryan and encouraging his people to vote against Paul Ryan. It was this kind of like Republican circular firing squad that it set off that lasted a long time, lasted basically till the Comey letter. Yeah, and and it was interesting in, in those days following it, Kellyanne Conway wouldn't really come out to defend him on this topic. The only person who really did was Rudy Giuliani, right? <laughs> right. Or Rudy Giuliani, who has been rewarded for that uh, so far, rewarded for that loyalty with precisely nothing. Well, and the Glenn, uh, the, but yes. the Glenn Thrush piece you referred to in Politico, I, I highly recommend people who are political junkies to read it. It, it goes into it some great. depth on this topic, and, and it reports that Trump was actually pissed at Giuliani for going out and defending it, for saying that he made a mistake <laughs> and he's apologized, because they just wanted to go on the attack. They, they wanted to throw out the normal playbook and just divert the topic to the liberal media trying to screw Donald Trump. What impact do you think that huge, huge story had on the electorate when all was said and done? Well, I think it did have an, an impact on the electorate when it happened. I think people it did change people's minds about Trump. You saw that in the polling averages. Uh, and I think also uh, it, it caused, you know, there are a lot of other Republicans who I think were willing to support Donald Trump when they thought he could win, uh, but, you know, disagree with him on a variety of things. And at that point, when they thought he was going to lose, were willing to back off. Think of Jason Chaffetz, the powerful House Oversight Committee chairman, saying, I'm out. You know, I can't look at my teenage daughter in the eye when I hear this sort of stuff. You know, and it's it's made people, I think, even more cynical about politicians, if that's even possible, because there were so many people at that moment who said on principle, absolutely no, they couldn't support Trump, they couldn't vote for him, who then reversed themselves again before Election Day and said they were yes. for Trump, including Chaffetz. Um and, and now we're having to back him because he's president-elect. So what have we learned from this? I mean, do you think politicians are going to behave differently in response to scandals as a result of this? I mean, I think that this sort of picked up a lesson that George W. Bush and before him Bill Clinton had employed, which is that if you don't seem ashamed by whatever you did, people will start to think that it wasn't shameful after all. That I think a lot of people look to politicians to communicate their, the depth of their own mistakes. And if you are able to convince people that you don't think it's a big deal or that you're moving on or it's really somebody else's fault, uh, you can move past it. Not everybody can do that. I was going to say, though, I, I'm going to have to take issue with that, David, because I think this was a singularly Trumpian response. And I'm just not sure anybody would have the bluster and the hubris to kind of deflect a story like this the way he did. Don't, I mean, can you see that as well? I think you're right. I think he was an extreme case. Uh, I mean, he already, had, by that point, had been the guy who said I could shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and people wouldn't care. Well, you know, my uh, colleague at Yahoo, Matt Bai, often said during the course of this campaign, Trump cannot be shamed. He he does. He's yes. genetic. He's genetically incapable of feeling ashamed about anything. But I think that's right. I think that's what we learned. But the, the interesting thing to me, you mentioned other politicians. I was really struck by those people, sort of 
they were reacting to what they thought voters would think and what they thought voters would care about. And I think when voters, you know, I think after a while when they realized that voters were not turning on Trump in the way they thought, they sort of slowly came back because they wanted to be on the winning side. So, David, I met you a few weeks ago at this conference at Harvard that brought together all the mm-hmm. top campaign operatives on both sides. And Here Katie's. we go, two Harvard people. Harvard, Harvard, Harvard. Oh, yeah, we're going to do the secret <laughs> handshake after this, <laughs> but uh, you can't watch it. <laughs> My so, safety goal, by the way, David. <laughs> she says not at all defensively. I was really <laughs> struck uh, by saying Robbie Mook, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, said to me, which is the, the negative frame on Trump was always take something he said and kind of make fun of it, attack it. But the media always showed the thing that Trump said. And the negative frame on Hillary was something totally outside of her campaign messaging. The Clinton Foundation or the emails or Benghazi. And so she didn't get the opportunity to like say what she wanted to say. And so for a lot of voters, it kind of boiled down to Trump the badass versus Hillary the crook. And given that choice, particularly in the wake of the uh, FBI director's letter, uh, they went with the badass um, and thinking at least they'd get some change in Washington. Well, we, we talked about the, you know, the shame thing. And I think that's a really interesting, they were two very opposite cases of, of how do you deal with a shameful act, right? Think of the way Clinton reacted to the email thing, which was for a long time giving shifting explanations about how much she was allowed to do. It was totally fine, or maybe it was mostly fine. Then apologizing for it, then apologizing more for it and dragging it out and letting it be the main thing that she talked about because she couldn't find the right thing to say about it. Uh, and I think that's sort of that she was an extreme case in the other way and that she showed so much sort of shame and unhappiness about that that it allowed it to dominate the campaign. So I think I think Robbie Mook was right. I think that's I think he's right about uh, sort of the the two different frames. But Clinton some, did some of that to herself, and I should say that she didn't have uh, some sort of other positive message about herself or not anything that broke through. So she was relying on Trump to sort of make her case for her to be a sort of campaign against him rather than for. But herself. can you imagine Hillary Clinton responding to the email scandal by saying, "Hey, I did it. Deal with it." Well, it's interesting. One of her biggest supporters uh, made exactly that point, that she shouldn't have apologized, that she should have said, you know what, Colin Powell suggested it. It was allowed under the rules. I did it. And, you know, there was nothing wrong with it. And there was nothing, you know, and it didn't it didn't uh, jeopardize national security. And there's no evidence that that email was ever hacked. Right. I, I do think that, I mean, I'm playing armchair armchair politician here, but I feel like if she, whatever she was going to do, she should have started doing it in May of 2015 and stuck with it. And the same with the Goldman Sachs speeches, you know, right. release that or don't. But, you know, like at this at the Harvard thing, uh, they, they somebody asked one of Clinton's aides, why didn't you just put out the transcripts of the Goldman Sachs speeches before? And her response was, well, what people would have picked through it. They would have asked all these questions. It would have been a lot of hassle. It was not a political calculation. It was them bearing the weight of these years right. of Clinton scandals and not wanting to get into it. And they created this thing that just lasted, this mystery that ergo, lasted the whole it election. It was just drip, 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 drip. And because she never gave a satisfactory answer, every journalist had to ask her every time she did an interview. And she could have said, hey, refer to my comments uh, from May. I've answered that question. Right. Let's talk about things the American people really care about. You know, I think I'm going to run totally. for office. I'm kidding. <laughs> Breaking anyway. news. <laughs> I'm kidding. Should we talk okay, about yeah, fake news? Yeah, Speaking yeah, of fake two, news. Yeah, <laughs> two two final sort of categories that uh, I want to talk to you about, and I know Brian's super interested in this as well. You know, why wasn't fake news discovered before Election Day? I mean, 
We saw all these bogus stories circulating around Facebook. I had friends send me things and say, did you see this? And I'd be like, it's insane. You know, Huma and Hillary Clinton are lesbians or Huma's associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Or I mean, there's so many crazy, crazy things out there. What happened? What? I mean, I think journalism, I, I include myself in this category, I think journalists really let the American people down by not pointing this out earlier. And we know the impact it had because there was one study that showed that in the three months before the election, these fake news stories were actually more widely shared than real news stories. So what happened? Well, I I do think that it's, you know, part of our bubble is that we live in a world where we read other legitimate news outlets. You know, that's who we follow on Twitter. That's who we follow on Facebook as journalists. And so I think in some ways it was hard to see how much, you know, other people had self-selected their their media feeds to just tell them all fake news. I think we didn't get it because we didn't see it. That's one thing. Uh, another thing is I think that it's, you know, for us, to the degree that we knew about it, you could write about it, and there was some writing about it, but, you know, for, we are struggling to figure out, okay, well, how do we show people our credibility? You know, how do we stand out? How do we beat those people in the marketplace if Facebook or Twitter is going to treat them equally to us? And I think we're still sort of trying to figure that out. And for me, my own little piece of it, it meant trying to be very transparent about what I was doing. You know, here's how I'm gathering this information. Here's who I've asked. Here's what I've asked. You know, and be open to people's suggestions. So to the degree that people saw me doing that on Twitter, I was trying to show them, look, this is how you report a real news story, uh, you know, so you can have more trust in what I'm producing. So what's going to be, what can be done about fake news? without sort of censoring, a, you know, news that may not be desirable or whatever. I mean, how do you how do you get your how do you wrap your arms around this? Well, part of it is a question for people like Twitter and Facebook. You know, they have to decide do they want to, you know, is there a market reason? Forget about censorship or, you know, public good reason. Is there a market reason why they may, might want to be able to give their customers a way to distinguish between use, real and fake things? You know, or do, do they think there's a, there's a uh, you know, a problem with their business model if, you know, half of the news they're showing is fake? Um, the other thing for us becomes how do we think about ways for the, you know, the, the mainstream media, the true media, how do we show people how hard we worked to to produce what we do? How do we show people the standards we adhere to? I think we need to be a lot more explicit about this. We think, we live in our world and think that, oh, everybody knows, you know, you have to have two sources. Everybody everybody knows things are better on the record. Everybody knows the rules that we follow, but not everybody does. So you're saying so we have to, under, it, that journalists have to, have to sell the public on what good journalism is and explain it to the public? I guess maybe, maybe so, huh? Yeah. I mean, if we're going to grow our audience, there's a lot of people who read us now, but if we're going to reach those people who are out there passing around fake news, like we need to show them, okay, this is, this is how we do it. You know, we need to, you know, we need to be, sure, be sure we're not wrong because we can lose a lot of what credibility What about having sort of like a good housekeeping seal of approval for legitimate legitimate news organizations. Craig Newmark, from the, who started Craigslist, said is giving a million dollars to the Pointer Institute. And one of the things they're talking about is having some kind of indication to viewers or readers that this is from a legitimate news Particularly source. Particularly on social yeah. media yeah, networks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I support that. I think there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of difficulties inherent in that. And, you know, you worry about ceding the power to somebody to distinguish, am I real or fake? Yeah. Uh, you know, you more want to do that on your own with the way you, you know, with your own work. But I think it's important that people are paying attention to that. I mean, I, I just thinking about ways to make our, you know, our stories more trustworthy or more, uh, you know, more clear how we know things. There's ways you could do stuff online to show people, make it easier for people to see the primary sources you relied on, to, to show people how you know the things you know uh, when, when that's 
it's possible. I think it would be really educational for a lot of people. And covering President Donald Trump is going to be an enormous challenge. Already his team is floating stuff like eliminating the daily briefings for the press. What do you think are going to be the two or three biggest challenges for reporters trying to hold this White House accountable? Well, I think the the biggest challenge that we've identified so far is Trump himself, that he often uses Twitter as a way to reach a mass audience in, w- with information that's wrong. I mean, he'll he'll he'll, t- he'll tweet out something where the facts are wrong or the context is wrong. And, it, you know, the way that we had dealt with things like that in the past was if the, you know, on the Sunday talk shows or a presidential speech or something like that, if the president says something, the first version of the story is written usually by somebody who's not a subject matter expert in that thing. And the story is the president said X. Right. And then a few hours later, somebody who's a subject matter expert writes the second version. It says the president says X. Here's what it means. Here's how you know, here's what's going to happen next. All that context. But the the way that you have to do it with Trump, Trump comes out and says, you know, the Air Force One contract costs four billion dollars. Well, that's wrong. You know, millions of people voted illegally. That's wrong. Uh, you know, nobody knows about climate change. That's wrong. So you can't have the first version of the story r- responsible. You can't have the first version of the story be Trump says X. And then five hours later, come back and say, hey, what he said was totally wrong. I mean, the truth is, you know, lie gets around the world before the truth gets its pants on. So we want to have something where we can, the first time we write about Trump's statement, the first story we write about his tweet or whatever is from the expert. And the expert says, hey, Trump said this, but it's wrong. And I want you to know that right away. Well, so it sounds like a lot of the coverage is going to be intensely critical. And do you worry about alienating the wide swath of American readers, viewers, et cetera, who say, hey, give this guy a chance. I mean, it, it's it's kind of a, a delicate balance, isn't it? It is. I, I think the main question for us is to avoid uh, seeming sort of emotional or in, invested in in a particular outcome, in meaning in, in Trump not doing well. If there's a big political ecosystem out there, and our job is to tell you what happened and to tell you, you know, what's what's new about what Trump is doing, but not to tell you, you know, is it going to lead to the you know, autocracy or is it going to lead to America being great again? You know, we have to just tell you what happened, let other people run with the uh, with the meaning of it. I think that's going to be a, uh, we have to sort of restrain ourselves from commenting too much rather than just sort of telling you what happened. David Farenthold, it's so fun to talk to you. I could stay here all day and I have so much respect for your reporting. Will you do our podcast after? you win a Pulitzer or did I just jinx it? Don't jinx it. But I would love to come on again. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Y'all have a good holiday. Okay. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. A big fat thank you to Gianna Palmer for producing the show and Jared O'Connell for engineering and mixing it. Thanks to Mark Phillips for our fantastic theme music. And thanks to you for listening throughout this year. We really appreciate it. And remember, you can email us at comments at currickpodcast.com or you can find me on social media. Brian is on social media too. He has... Oh, tens of followers. Yeah. I'm at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and Katie.Couric on Snapchat. What's your handle, good buddy? <laughs> you don't even know, do you? Yes, I do, isn't it? Is it at BM Goldsmith? No. This <laughs> is sad. At Goldsmith B on oh, Twitter. Good, because I don't like BM Goldsmith. Okay. Best of all, you can rate and review us on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe as well. Thank you again for listening. We've had so much fun doing this. I hope you've had fun listening to our antics. And we'll see you in 2017.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Because there's nothing like a weekend pause with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 